Words have power. I remember hearing this as a boy. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words go straight to the heart. Words can penetrate us, and a word can also open things up. There's a word I want to introduce you to that if you haven't heard before, it's a unique word. It's called eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. It's a word that the great author J.R.R. Tolkien, the English writer and author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Hobbit, coined in his essay on fairy tales, which means the opposite of a catastrophe. The word is eucatastrophe. It is the sudden, joyous turn of an event. It's that moment when all seems lost, when evil seems to have finally overcome every good thing, and when the hero can go no further. And then the light prevails against the darkness. The heroine or the good guy wins. Eucatastrophe. Here's another way of saying it. There's Tolkien right there for you. You take the Greek you, good, and combine that with catastrophe, destruction, and you put them together, and it means this. The sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings tears, which I argue is the highest function of fairy tales to produce. Eucatastrophe. It's another way of saying that there might be a real purpose to this. God's plans and God's ways, his wonders and plans are behind and underneath even words of caution and strong words. This week is part two of a series called Warnings Caution You and Words Comfort You. We're in the book of Isaiah. We call it the Gospel of Isaiah, and we're in a subsection. And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 29. I'd invite you to turn to page 608 in your pew Bible. We'll read all of it. But let's just take a pause for a second before we take a look. We're nearly about a quarter of the way through the Gospel of Isaiah. This will bring us all the way to Christmas. You may be asking the question, why do we call it the Gospel of Isaiah? Well, the sheer craftsmanship of Isaiah is seen as some, by some scholars as calling him the Shakespeare of the Bible because of his masterful poetic illustrations and words. And we'll see that right out of the chute in the chapter we're looking at. Isaiah uses the, the word aerial, which sounds like altar hearth as a way of mentioning worship. The other reason why we would call it the Gospel of Isaiah is because Isaiah has more references in the New Testament than any other book, even more than Psalms. Let that just sink in for a second. This illustration might help you. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament tells of Jesus. A good study Bible will have cross-references, and a good method of Bible interpretation is asking the question, how does other scripture interpret other scripture? Let the clear unpack the fuzzy. This is called by the, some scholars as the Christocentricity of the Bible. We understand it to be the red-letter theme of Scripture that all Scripture is pointing to Jesus. One devotional writer stated it this way. I love it. Jesus is then present in the entire history of Israel. He's always present as the God who speaks and the Savior who is prophesied about. The whole God-man is present in the Old Testament, not symbolically or allegorically, but in concrete reality. And he gives himself to his chosen people whenever and wherever, over and over again, where his promises are believed and received. That's 
the concrete reality of faith that, as the German reformer Martin Luther noticed, is stretched from the first Adam until the return of the second Adam, Jesus. Christ is God's word present in the great sign and wonders done by God in the Old Testament. I love this next line that this guy wrote. That is the grace of God. Look at the word of God and you will see it on two legs. The word of God became flesh and lived amongst us, John 1.14 said. And the paraphrase message says this, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And in the Old Testament, in the Gospel of Isaiah, we see the footprints of Jesus. So as a reminder, as we get into this message on Isaiah chapter 29, you'll see these four major themes. Uh, you could call them trademarks. I'm sure that there are more themes that are in Isaiah. I'm sure there's other really good ones. But these are the ones that I am emphasizing as we go through this series. Number one is you will see the holiness of God in Isaiah. You'll see it in chapter 29. In verses 19 and 23, you see this phrase called the Holy One of Israel. Why is that significant? That is Isaiah's signature. He uses it 25 times and only nine other times in the rest of the Old Testament. That's his penmanship. That God is set apart and God is pure. No one is like him. You see that. And we'll see it in 29. The second theme or trademark in Isaiah is the judgment of God. Not just for Assyria and Egypt and Babylon, but for his beloved. His beloved. The ten tribes of the north, Israel, are, and the two tribes to the south, they intensely hated each other. Think of it in terms of the American Civil War, the northern states, them Yankees, and the southern states, those rebel confederates. Beyond their hatred of each other, they didn't pursue and follow the ways of the covenant. And they worshipped idols. That was intolerable for our father. And it's intolerable for us to follow suit. So instead of repenting and asking for God's mercy and help, God judged them. You will see strong actions and strong words in verses 2 and 3. It will make you shudder. Now verse 4, it will say, they were brought low. You will see that speech has been reduced to mumbles and whispers. In verse 7 and 9, in the chapter that we're going to take a look at, uses fighting language. Third trademark, you'll see it in this passage of Scripture, is the mercy of God, the eucatastrophe, unexpected, hints, words like remnant for those who are imperfect, but whose faith and trust is in our Father. Last week, we saw the illustration of a perfect, fa perfect farmer. This week, we'll see a perfect potter. And when mercy comes, as one commentator says, you go from a minor key to a major key. Minor to major. Where is that? Verse 5, verse 17. And finally, this is the best part. Finally, one of the themes, one of the trademarks of Isaiah is the Redeemer. A word of grace. God himself acts. He moves not when we get our act cleaned up, but in spite of our failures. He pays the ransom fee for our failures and our sins and our shortcomings. And you see that in verse 5. In verse 22 actually uses the word redeem. He keeps his word. He is the hero. And the one who does that is the Lord Almighty. 
So this morning, chapter 29 falls into a subsection of 28 through 35, and it gives us six warnings. Six warnings or woes as used in the NIV. We had the first warning last week in 28, and this morning we'll see two of them in one chapter. First warning is this. We will look at, from the prophet Isaiah's words, we'll look at spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness for the Lord Almighty. Terms like blind and sightless and deep sleep and sealed eyes and missing the whole ver- ver- vision or the whole picture, that's the idea. We forget how mighty and powerful he is, and in blindness we see the bigness of God Almighty. And it begs the question, is anything too hard for the Lord Almighty? Wow. We'll touch on a historical example today and unpack it much more in a couple weeks. The second warning, and no surprise, comes at the second half of chapter 29. This is where we're going. And the danger, it is the danger of forgetting that transformation is really the goal in messy discipleship of what our Heavenly Father is yearning for all of us. This section raises the question, is anyone unseen, unknown by the Holy One of Israel? There it is, the Holy One of Israel, the signature of Isaiah. In this section, what we'll look at, we'll see terms like humble and needy are used in this section. And his beloved, here's the mercy part, his beloved are no longer ashamed, and they keep his name holy. Holy One of Israel shows us, what, shows us what that is like by a potter, shaping, forming, and warning that he sees and he knows and he remembers his covenant to redeem. Praise God. And in response to that, we'll hear from a good friend of Jesus, Peter the Apostle, a reminder of what that looks like in 1 Peter 1. So, I invite you, did you find that passage in your pew Bible there on page 608? We'll read the first section, 1 through 14. We'll explain it. Say, Lord, how does this impact me? Lord, what do you want me to think about? And then we'll read the second woe from 15 to 24. Each section starts with a woe we're warning. And then you know it's a section because then it summarizes by using the word therefore. And as I've said many times, when you see the word therefore, ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And it summarizes it. So reading in Jesus' name. Woe to David's city. Woe to you, Ariel. The city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on, yet I will besiege Ariel. Strong word. She will mount and lament. She will be like to, like to me as an altar hearth. That's what Ariel means. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers. I will set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of dust and your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. And out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust. The ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorms and tempest and flames of devouring fire. And then the hordes of the nation that fight against Ariel, that will attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. As when the hungry person dreams of eating but awakens hungry still. As when a thirsty person dreams 
out of, of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still, so it will be. So it will be with the hordes of the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For this whole vision or whole picture is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this please, they will answer, I can't. It's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they will say, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on merely human rules they've been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. This is the first woe. The first woe is this. Is anything too hard for the Lord Almighty? This tide of spiritual blindness that we see, the city of David called Ariel was the geographic center of worship in Jerusalem. But the geographic center of worship has become empty, empty of awe and adoration and the holiness of God. So what does the word of God with two legs say about worship? How does Jesus address worship? The most famous passage is probably John chapter 4 where Jesus talks to the woman at the well and they have this ongoing conversation. They talk about location. She talks about location. We talk about style or music. But Jesus said, worship is those who worship in spirit and truth. As we lift up his holiness and we adore him for the relationship that he has made possible through Christ. So where is the mercy, Pastor Kirk? That'd be a fair question. It's found in the significant name for God in this passage. The significant name for God is Lord Almighty, which means divine warrior. The one who conquers and the one who pres pres preserves his people. I mentioned the violent language that's used in 2 and 3 and 4. Did you circle some of those words? That's the minor key change to major key. And what scholars call threat oracles, you see those over and over again in verse 5, these words that pile on, pile on, and pile on. And so in this first woe, we wrestle with this question, with this divine mystery, the divine mystery that blinds all who prefer not to see. What happens to people who prefer not to see? Well, our Lord, the word of God on two legs helps us here in Luke chapter 13. Jesus is confronted and he weeps over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13. And here's what Jesus says about those who are spiritually blind. Let her, his words be our words and our heart posture. Luke chapter 13, 34 says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Jesus did not take joy 
in his people's rejection of the Lord. His father, yours and mine. Or stop, nor did he stop longing for his people to repent so they would escape destruction. Let us learn from this. We are super tempted to write off people who reject the truth and allow our longings for their redemption to waver. Let us double down, if you will, and continue to pray and intercede and fast while we have strength, while we have breath, and reach out to those and intercede on their behalf to our Father. Is anyone, is anyone beyond our Father's reach? He will shut the door. Not me. God will have the final say. Not me. How can we prevent ourselves from having spiritual blindness? I think two questions that we've asked repeatedly here is this. When we come into worship, we ask the question, Lord, what is your word saying to me? Lord, what what are you asking me to do about it? Not that we work our salvation, no, but we respond to it. Absolutely. The hordes of the nation, that's powerful. It had impact back then for the listeners back then. It has impact for us. Let me explain. The hordes of the nations is asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord Almighty? Well, there's a biblical reference to this. It's a hint, and we'll look at it more in a couple weeks, to 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. And that's on page 333. If you want to turn there, you can turn to that passage of Scripture. And it's a hint, it's a, it's a wink to how God, you catastrophed, stepped in and did something absolutely amazing. Second Kings chapter 18 and 19 talked about the slaughter of Assyrians in a single night. 185,000 of them in one night. Unger's Bible handbook tells this about the Assyrians. The pages of history are nowhere more bloody than in the records of the Assyrian Wars. No more more bloody. Well, this was a bloody battle. How does the Lord Almighty do something that seemed too hard? God's people were surrounded by the Assyrian army. And then the Lord Almighty, he stepped in. And he did a miracle. 2 Kings 18 and 19 tell that story but in that account, but let me summarize it on page 333, 2 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 35. If you turned, this is where I'm reading. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Same capital city Jonah went. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, they were polytheistic, meaning many gods. Nisroch was the god of agriculture. His sons, Adam, that guy, and Sherez, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Akkaret. And Ashradah, his son, succeeded him as king. Is anything, is anything too hard for the Lord? Then I think in terms of this, hordes, nations coming against. And the word horde in the the verb form 
means to growl or to roar or to be boisterous again and again and again. And as a noun, it means hubbub or noise. What's the constant noise that's in our head? What are the scripts that are playing when someone wakes up and they're hungry and empty? Did you see that? Verse 8, when a person dreams of eating and awakens hungry still, is when a thirsty person dreams of drinking and they, they just they feel, they feel empty. They've had it all. They've had it all. It was amazing. Um, the song we sang, Amazing Grace, uh, the guy who wrote that at 27, mid-20s, uh, was a very wealthy slave trader. And God got a hold of his life through a storm. There's a famous athlete who won't be playing football anymore. Tuesday, the NFL teams report, your Green Bay Packers and my beloved Purple. Well, for 23 years, Tom Brady reported to uh, training camps as well, too. He's not anymore, and he beat your team, and he beat my team a lot. But at 27, he had gotten to the top of his game. And maybe some of you have seen this. He was on 60 Minutes, and he's 27 years old. And I'm not doing this to mock Tom Brady. I'm not at all. But he asks this question, this haunting question. Is this it? Is this, is, this, is this it? I've won three Super Bowls. Is this it? I think it breaks your heart when we take a look at this. And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, it's, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a I know I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find, and different ways of expression, being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends, and positive relationships with with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. I remember when I saw that the first time, my heart broke for this brother, this man. He's made in the image of God Almighty. Verse 8 says in the New King James Version, when they awaken, the soul is empty. When the hunger and void is there, this is it. As followers of Christ, we are reminded in Romans 12 to do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. The word that the Apostle Paul uses for world is not the created order, not the world as we see. The word world there is is a world for ages, cultures, what goes on in our head. Don't be conformed to the voices or the patterns or the culture of the age. I was thinking about that, and I'm not sure what scripts play in your head, but these are a few of them that we hear a lot. We hear this 
culture value that says be the best version of yourself. I'm trying to be the best version of yourself. The scriptures as a follower of Christ actually say this. You are being made into a holy version of him. See the difference? There's another one. You can be anything you want to be. Anything you want to be. My good friend Greg Anderson, who's at Bible Camp, he said this last summer, I was at the National Convention, and I just busted up. He's got a great sense of humor. He said, we apologize for an entire generation telling him you can be anyone who you want to be. If that would be true, I'd be the shortstop of the Minnesota Twins still in my mid-50s. And I'm like, no, that would be great. You can't do that. I'm a sinner in thought, word, and deed. And when I give Jesus my heart, what does he, what does he do with a soiled one? Gives me a brand new one. I can be anyone I want to be. You know, the first word of identity in the Bible is what theologians call imagio Dei. Latin term for image bearer, stamp bearer of God. When someone is a uh, stamp bearer, you see the characteristics of their parents in them. Right? Same schnoz, same maybe hair, same chin. We're made in the imagio Dei of God. God Almighty. These scriptures teach us, and this is a mystery, the Lord's word will be hidden from some and revealed to others. And so as a follower of Christ, when we hear these words, the problem that's raised of a spiritual coma is a caution and a warning to us. As we hold on to Zion, we are safe. Or as we learned last week, that key word in Isaiah chapter 28, is cornerstone. When we hold on to Jesus, he will keep us safe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19 says, the power of God is foolishness to those who hear it. Galatians chapter 6, 6 through 7 says, the Lord loves his people, but he won't be mocked. Even in our struggle with sin, we can turn to him and cry out, Lord, have mercy. This last week in my personal Bible reading, it was like there was a light that came on. And I've always wrestled with the difference between what Peter did and what Judas did. Did they not both deny Christ? Did they not both deny Christ? And in my, in my, my reading, it, and, and the devotional writer that I was reading and inter, interacting with said the difference was godly sorrow. Did you catch that? The difference between Peter and Judas was godly sorrow. Turning to the Lord and say, I am sorry. He went out and wept bitterly when he was restored in John chapter 21. Peter's response to Jesus after three times, because of the three times he denied him, he ultimately said this, Lord, you know all things. Or other translators will say this, you know what I'm like. So here this warning, this caution, pleading, this posture, confess, turn to Christ, say, Lord, have mercy on me. That's the first warning. That's the first word of comfort. The second warning comes in verse 15. I'd have you take a look at that, page 610, beginning in verse 15. Again, it starts with woe or a warning, and then you'll see the summary beginning in verse 22. Woe to those 
who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you didn't make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? And the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll out of gloom and darkness, and the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord, and the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. All who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, therefore, this is what the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, says to the descendants of Jacob, no longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see them among the children, the work of my hand, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob. And he will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will, insect, will accept instruction. So woe number two begs the question, is anyone unseen by the Holy One of Israel? Let me repeat that. Is anyone unseen by the Holy One of Israel? You may say, where'd you get that? Well, the, the, the section, the warning starts off with something absurd. The opening question is, can you hide your plans and thoughts from the Lord? And that's not a test question if you're sitting there thinking, uh, no. Right answer. Verses 15 and 16 uses, again, four question, a similar pattern to what we saw in his masterful work that Isaiah says, does in chapter 28, 23 through 25, used a metaphor of a perfect farmer. Four questions. And now, in 29, we have the perfect potter. Four questions. And he turns things turns things up, side, down. Only other time you see this is in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 34, and it addresses the spirit of self-sufficiency. One of Isaiah's themes or trademark is that Holy One of Israel, and you see it. You see this minor key shift to major key shift. And Lebanon, which was a, a word picture for mountain ranges and forests. I think of my good friend who lives next to Olympic National Park. Imagine the mountains and the peaks now being turned into fertile field. Beautiful promises in verse 18. Beautiful promises in verse 19. Look at them. They're promises of healing and hope. Our friends like Samaritan's Purse, Medical Missions, they hold on to these verses. Our friends like Mercy Ministries, like Hope Gospel, they hold on to these verses. This is what gives them their strength and their, their foundation, that they are in step with the Spirit. And so Jesus' good friend Peter uses these words in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. I'd invite you this week to write this down and go, ooh, I've got to study this. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 1. 17. Since you call on the Father who judges each person work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Foreigners. 
For you know that it's not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from the ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. Right there on the cross. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who has raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. There will come a day when God will judge the living and the dead. He will take care of it. And we are invited in to see the long view, the long view of Scripture. In verse 20, we are freed of destructive elements. Verse 21 talks of legal and judicial systems that will be put in place. 22 through 24 says this, the Lord will keep his promises. He's going to keep his promises to his beloved, and he uses his theme or trademark signature. Do you see it there? The Holy One of Israel. He is in the work of redeeming broken people and broken relationships for us as descendants of Jacob. You see it right there in verse 22. Holy One of Israel, he is faithful. So it's fair to ask, in light of this passage of Scripture, how do you protect yourself from spiritual blindness? How can I grow and not waste my life, waste my time, waste the years that I have on planet Earth? How can I protect myself from that? Well, I think the five questions that we have wrestled through as a congregation are five that are fantastic to go back to and review again and again and again. They're printed in your bulletin insert. You can pick up a coaster at the Welcome Center. These five questions. Number one, how did you see God at work in your life this week? How did you see God at work? Number two, what has God been teaching you in his word? What kind of conversation are you having with, three, with pre-Christians? And what good can you do around here? What good can you do in Jesus' name? And how can we help with other people in prayer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Is anyone unseen by the Holy One of Israel? Nope. Not your neighbors. Not your kids. Not your grandkids. Not a sibling who doesn't know Christ. No. J.R. Tolkien, who came up with that term, eucatastrophe, was a fabulous Fabulous storyteller. His, his work still live. People love it. He was also a good friend of C.S. Lewis and was used by the Lord in their friendship to, over the years, have Lewis consider the claims of Jesus in the grand narrative of the gospel story. Tolkien didn't lead him to Christ, but he certainly pointed him in that direction. And Lewis, in turn, blessed those of us Bless those of us who came behind him with a set of classical books, Mere Christianity, The Weight of Glory. But he may be most well known for his books called The Chronicles of Narnia. This is a series of children's books, but it's really for everyone, seven of them. It talks about a land of Narnia. It talks about a Christ figure by the name of Aslan. In the second book, a key character, Lucy, meets Aslan again. And in chapter 10, 
Lucy sees Aslan, who's the Christ figure, and has this interaction. Aslan, Aslan, at last she sobbed. And the great beast, the lion, rolled on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around him. She gazed up to his large face and large and wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, Lucy said. You're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have such puny minds. Who can understand you? Who can possibly grasp your wisdom, your holiness? How can I, Father, worship you when the angels uh, struggle for words with holy, holy, holy? So, Lord, you know our stories. You know the stories and the relationships that will play out this week in the web of relationships that are here. We live in this tension. We live in this tension why some people's eyes are blind and some aren't. And yet we have this calling to intercede and to, and, to, and to fast for them and pray for them. Protect us from spiritual blindness that we come anticipating to hear a word from you. Open our ears. Help us to confess sin, crying out to you again and again, Lord, have mercy, and you hear that prayer. You are the Redeemer because you are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Holy One for your beloved. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I'd invite you now just to talk to the Lord. Confess your sin. Thank him for his goodness.